Hello and welcome. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Welcome to today's conversation. Welcome to the Panopticon, Israel's systematic surveillance, surveillance of Palestinians and the implications for the world. Um, some quick housekeeping before we get started. Um, as always, the format for today's webinar is going to be a discussion between the panelists and myself and maybe each other. Uh, we're going to end at 1.30. It's being recorded and live streamed on Facebook. Greetings to all those who are joining us on Facebook. Uh, I have my own questions, uh, but in addition, I'm eager to take audience questions. You can submit those via the Q&A function at the bottom of your Zoom screen, uh, and I'll do my best to work those into the discussion. Uh, don't put your questions into the chat box. I'm not keeping an eye on the chat box. However, you should keep an eye on the chat box because my colleagues in the background are going to be posting resources there throughout the webinar, um, and that will be useful to you. Uh, lastly, we have uh, enabled uh, closed captioning for people who prefer or need uh, to read to follow the discussion. So, um, brief introduction. Uh, for anyone who has been living under a rock, the context for this webinar is, is the following. A series of major stories broke over the past week or so about Israel's cyber surveillance of Palestinians, from hacking the phones of human rights defenders and officials, to increased monitoring of Jerusalemites, to the mass deployment of facial recognition software against Palestinians in the West Bank. So today we're gonna to do a deep dive into each of these cases and their broader meaning for cyber warfare, surveillance and human rights. So to discuss these issues and their broader implications, we are very proud to have uh, in conversation with me, uh, four experts, three of whom are visible right now. And the fourth one is definitely trying to get in right now. The technology is not cooperating. Um, so we hope to have him. So uh, hopefully we have with us, Andrew Anderson from Frontline Defenders, um, Marwa Fatefta from Access Now, Avner Gvayahu from Breaking the Silence, and Sophia Goodfriend from Hamla. Uh, you can see full bios on our website. Just very briefly, Andrew Anderson uh, is the Executive Director of Frontline Defenders. Marwa Fatefta leads Access Now's work on digital rights in the Middle East and North Africa region as the MENA Policy Manager. Sophia Goodfriend is a PhD candidate in anthropology at Duke University with expertise in digital rights and digital surveillance in Israel-Palestine. And she joined Hamla, the Arab Center for Social Media Advancement, as a researcher in the summer of 2021 to investigate the impact of digital surveillance on Palestinian Jerusalemites. And last, we have Avner Gvaria, who is the executive director of Breaking the Silence. So, uh, again, we're waiting for uh, the technology to cooperate to let Andrew in, but in the meantime, I'm gonna ask the panelists to go ahead and each one of you just take a couple of minutes to introduce your organization and what it does, because the audience that is introduced in the, is interested in the surveillance and technology issues, I suspect not all of them are completely conversant in the organizations that focus on Israel-Palestine. So Marwa, why don't you lead off? Thank you so much, Laura, and hi, everyone. My name is Marwa, and as Laura introduced me, I work for Access Now. Uh, for those who don't know us, we are a global organization working to defend and extend human rights in the digital age, or as we know um, as digital rights. And so we work on issues related to surveillance, privacy, freedom of expression, among other issues. And I'm very pleased to be part of the conversation today. Thank you. Uh, Avner? Hi, great to be here. Um, so I'm the executive director of Breaking the Silence. We're a group of former Israeli soldiers who have come together um, since 2004 to shed a light on the reality on the ground through the perspective of those carrying it out. So not of 
victims, but victimizers in this case, um, and through our experiences trying to end the occupation and definitely not better it, as we'll talk about, I'm sure, um, this evening. And Sophia. Thanks, Laura. I'm Sophia Goodfriend. Um, I joined Hamla, the Arab Center for the Advancement of Social Media this summer as a researcher. It's a nonprofit that advocates for Palestinian digital rights. Hamla studies and researchers researches issues related to Palestinian digital rights and also provides hands-on digital activism and digital security capacity building to Palestinian activists on the ground and civil society here in Palestine. Terrific. And as I said, we I know that Andrew is trying to get on. He just dropped off where he was trying. So I think he's trying again. So we're going to jump in and get started. And when Andrew joins, we'll have him introduce himself and then he can he can go right into the substance. Um, Avner, we're going to start with you. Uh, so last week, the Washington Post published a huge report uh, based on Israeli soldiers' testimonies, which actually were submitted to Breaking the Silence. And the report was detailing Israel's use of facial recognition technology to build a surveillance database that includes, according to the report, nearly every single Palestinian in the West Bank. Um, you were quoted in that story and you said, I'm quoting, while surveillance and privacy are at the forefront of the global public discourse, we see here another disgraceful assumption by the Israeli government and military that when it comes to Palestinians, basic human rights are simply irrelevant. So can you tell us more about this story and what it tells us both about Israeli surveillance technology and policy and Israel's attitude toward Palestinians? Yeah, I mean, um, when, when we first learned about this practice um, from testifiers, um, we were both simultaneously surprised and very unsurprised. And, and, and I'll start with, with the latter. I mean, uh, um, um, all of us that, that are working on, on issues in Israel-Palestine and, and, and trying to sort of expose the reality of, of the occupation, uh, you know, have seen technological developments um, throughout the years. Um, we've seen this um, with the way the, uh, here, I think we have Andrew. I think we, 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 um, we've seen it in the ways that um, the army has, uh, um, expanded or built um, or used technology when it comes to monitoring Palestinians crossing from occupied territories into Israel proper. Um, we've seen different usage of, of, uh, of cameras and so on. Um, so, so we weren't surprised that um, you know, taking this uh, technology and using it in this way is sort of very, cl very classic move, sort of a, another layer on the already existing layer of monitoring and control. Um, with that said, I, I think what, what did come as a surprise was um, the fact that, that this technology that it, it, you know, in Israel proper um, is, is debated, questioned, there's you know, like, uh, like other countries you know, about the, the, the use of this kind of technology on, on its own citizens. Um, um, is, is debated here. This is something that just basically just started happening. Uh, and when we started hearing from our testifiers about the way that it was um, um, uh, used in, in the army uh, and used on the ground, we were really surprised how widespread it was. 
um, and, and, and also um, how the, the, the infantry soldier on the ground was given access to uh, um, um, using this technology. And, and, and so those of you that haven't read the article, but the, the, the idea of what the army, what the IDF is calling Blue Wolf, um, which is the name of the system, is, is, is really creating a, a bank of uh, information for different usage of, of the army, but it's, it's used in, in, a, in a variety of ways. So um, this technology is used on, on cameras, checkpoints that are in different places around specifically the city of Hebron, but we know this technology is used outside the city of Hebron as well. But we heard from our testifiers, and this is part of the, um, I think the thing that really caught our attention, Soldiers are patrolling the streets of the city, and those of you who know the, the, the reality in the city of Hebron, H2 area, really the best, really microcosm of, of the apartheid reality in, in, in the territories, um, is, is, a, is, is an area with massive military presence. So soldiers standing and just scanning uh, Palestinian, Palestinian faces um, is something that... Uh, um, I think really, really stood out, and and um, you know, get, getting this information out there for us was was key. And we're really happy that together with voices of Palestinians who were living this daily surveillance, um, you know, the the post um, um, was was the platform, and it came out also in many places around the world and in Israel as well. Thanks, and that is a great lead-in for my question for Andrew, who is with us now. So, Andrew. Um, hoping your technology works. If you could take a moment and introduce your organization, we already got through that round. So just people are wanting to know who you are and what the organization is. Um, and then I'll come back to you as soon as you finish with my question. Excellent. So I hope you can hear me. Ele electricity has been restored where I am, which I didn't think to be a problem in New York, but there you go. Um, so uh, my name is Andrew Anderson. I'm the executive director of Frontline Defenders. Frontline was set up in 2001 with the exclusive focus on the protection of human rights defenders at risk. So we work globally to support human rights activists who are facing risk because of their human rights work. And we provide uh, protection grants for security measures. We do capacity building around risk analysis and security, we do advocacy on individual cases. But one of the programs we run is a program of support in terms of digital protection, and we provide one-to-one -one support as well as some capacity building and resources for human rights defenders who are facing challenges in terms of uh, securing their information, communicating securely with other people, deleting information, uh, getting past blocks on the internet, etc. Uh, with colleagues who work in each of the world regions in different languages. And it's through that that uh, we came to be working on this issue today. So speaking about this issue today, so Avner has just talked about the broad use of facial recognition technology across the West Bank, which we learned about in the report last week. Um, talk to us about the investigation by frontline defenders into a much more targeted, focused kind of surveillance. And this is the news that broke last week, um, that your organization uh, had discovered a, a virulent strain of Israeli spyware known as Pegasus, produced by the NSO group. Um, it was found on the phones of multiple staff members of Palestinian human rights organizations who just happened to also, uh, right after that discovery, um, were labeled terrorist groups by Israel. 
So can you tell us more about what happened, who you found was being surveilled, how did they find out, what, what happened when they found out, and, and also maybe take a moment and describe what Pegasus actually does, because my impression talking to people is they just think of this in terms of hacking phones, like listening to phone calls, um, which is such an underappreciation, I think, of the, the virulent nature of Pegasus um, and its, its impact. Yeah, I mean, the the timeline is in itself uh, interesting as to when uh, the defender from Al-Haq first reached out to us regarding suspicions about uh, their phone and then um, the sequence that included the listing of the Palestinian human rights organizations as, as terrorists. But in terms of our engagement, um, my colleague, Mohamed Al-Muskati, who is our digital protection coordinator for the Middle East and North Africa, who's working with human rights defenders in the region on a regular basis, was contacted by someone from Al-Haq. They had concerns about um, their phone. Uh, he did some analysis on that phone. That analysis uh, indicated the presence of Pegasus in discussion with uh, Al-Haq and others. He then analyzed a further group of phones making 71 in total. We identified six that we were confident had definitely showed indication that Pegasus had been operating on their phones. It should be noted that our capacity to do that is, is uh, with regard to iPhones. So some of the Android phones might also have been uh, compromised, uh, but we weren't able to, to confirm or uh, deny that, but of the six, uh, three uh, of the human rights defenders have agreed um, to have their uh, names published. Three of them have preferred uh, not to have uh, their names published, but they're all um, part of um, the six uh, human rights organizations who were uh, labeled as as uh, terrorist uh, organizations. Um, it it's includes um, Ghassan Halaika, excuse my pronunciation, Halalaika from Al-Haq, Ubay Al-Aboudi, Executive Director at Bizan Center for Research and Development, and Salah Hamouri, uh, lawyer and field researcher at, at Adamir, and three others. So. We got that information fairly quickly, but we wanted to, to be absolutely sure. Uh, we went to Citizen Lab, who are based at the University of Toronto and who are uh, leaders in the field of analysis of some of this thing. They did a peer review of our work. We also went to the Amnesty Tech Lab, who also did a peer review of our work. Um, it all confirmed um, our uh, diagnosis that there had been hacking uh, using Pegasus on the six. Uh, phones. It's it's maybe important to say that we we can't prove who hacked the phones. Um, we can have our suspicions. Uh, I think it's interesting that even some uh, right wing uh, parts of the Israeli media uh, have not been any doubt about uh, who's involved in doing this, and have indeed raised concerns about this being done, including on some phones that have Israeli uh, numbers. Uh, because the defenders are based in Jerusalem. Um, so it's quite interesting how that has, has played out, I think, after uh, the report was published. Um, 
And of course, it's it's not that defenders in Israel are not aware that their phones and our other communications and devices are under surveillance and potentially going to be hacked. I think the, the Pegasus spyware, as you said, is, is particularly pernicious because it gets access to everything that's on your device and also uh, has the potential to compromise anybody else um, that you're in communication with. So it's very likely that uh, Israeli citizens who were in touch with these human rights defenders have also had um, their devices compromised as a result of the use of the NSO spyware. Um, it's it's part of the reality for human rights defenders. It's it's. Um, I, I think it's important to remember the personal impact that it has often on human rights defenders. That. Um, stress that comes with knowing that anything you've communicated, pictures of your family, uh, messages that you've sent to your loved ones, etc., is suddenly in somebody else's hands and might be used or misused or, or um, twisted uh, to be used against. It, it, it's, a, it's a very profound and personal attack on individuals as well as a systematic uh, approach to trying to delegitimize and undermine the work of human rights organizations that are doing very important work in, in difficult circumstances. Um, we've been calling for more effective action to be taken against the NSO group. They've been active in other countries where autocratic regimes have been using their technology to go after human rights defenders, journalists and others who work peacefully for human rights uh, and against corruption in some of those those countries. Um, and hopefully the increased attention that we've seen over the last couple of weeks and indeed some of the, the first reactions from some of uh, the Western governments show that there is some um, willingness to take more effective action to, to regulate uh, the companies that are engaged in this and try and more effectively set a regulatory framework that will protect better those who are working peacefully for human rights. I'll stop you. It obviously yeah. connects everything else that's going on uh, in terms of the Palestinian human rights organizations too. Thank you. And, and that last point, hold on to that because we're going to come back to you in another round to talk specifically about the way forward, what can change, what is changing. Um, sticking to the breaking news. Um, so Sophia, I want to come to you. Uh, there was a lot of news last week. Uh, so last week, Hamla released a report entitled Intensification of Surveillance in East Jerusalem and Impact on Palestinian Residents' Rights, Summer and Fall 2020-2021. Um, the report examined the impact of biometric monitoring and digital surveillance in East Jerusalem. Can you tell us about the report's main findings? What makes Israeli surveillance in East Jerusalem unique? And what role, particularly interesting, do private corporations play in Israel's surveillance regime? And, and to the extent that you can talk about it, the meaning or importance um, that private companies um, have in, in this state surveillance. Yeah, thank you. So as you mentioned, for folks who haven't read the report yet, it came out last week and you we were really interested in understanding if and how surveillance had intensified since the violence of April and May and the war that happened this past spring. 
Um, and what we found was pretty concerning regarding both biometric surveillance, CCTV surveillance, and surveillance of Palestinian social media activity and digital communications in general. Um, we found that all of those things did in fact intensify um, and they have really grave implications for both freedom of expression, freedom of movement and people's right to privacy, Palestinian Jerusalem's Jerusalemites right to privacy um, in the city. So for example, we found that, you know, there's been um, uh, many new CCTV cameras that have gone up. Some of these look directly into residents' home in East Jerusalem. And that is just really terrifying and uncomfortable to live with. Um, and same goes for um, the surge in targeted arrests. So many residents are assuming that these cameras possess facial recognition capabilities that are leading in the intensification of policing and targeted arrests in particular. And then also everybody we talked to who was on social media reported a lot of censorship, being blocked from their accounts, having their posts taken down, um, and just feeling quite insecure on social media platforms, even as they really affirmed the importance as we, as most of us saw this summer and spring of these platforms and amplifying their cause. Um, so yeah, the, the, the main findings were, like I said, the erosion of freedom of expression, freedom of movement and a right to privacy. Um, I think it's important to also understand how these new forms of digital surveillance work in tandem with the older um, tactics of Israel's military rule in East Jerusalem. We found that digital surveillance, as we've known and many people have written about for years, is kind of, you know, just one um, tactic in a larger arsenal that's really making life unbearable for Palestinian Jerusalemites living in the city. Um, I think that, you know, what makes it unique is just the uh, proliferation of new cameras, the intensification that surveillance takes both in physical space and in digital space. And then also um, just the ways in which Palestinian Jerusalemites lack, you know, basic recourse to civil liberties um, and basic political rights as permanent residents of the city and not as citizens. Um, so I think those are also really important to kind of highlight and keep in mind, especially as Avner is talking about the ways in which um, within Israel proper, the use of facial recognition and digital, you know, location monitoring is always kind of hashed out in courts and Israel says that it maintains a basic right to privacy for its citizens, but um, in East Jerusalem and throughout the occupied West Bank, you see that these um, debates are just not happening. And these surveillance measures are often rolled out, you know, nobody has any idea what's going on, nobody knows what actually these cameras are capable of doing or what kinds of digital surveillance are actually being used. So that complete lack of transparency is really, really concerning. Um, and I think just goes to show how the denial of a right to privacy is also a just denial of basic human rights. Um, I think it's, what was important about the report too is just really highlighting the impact this has on everyday life. Um, it is quite terrifying to feel like you're constantly surveilled and like cameras are looking into your home and your, your digital communications are being monitored and your movement through a city is being tracked. So um, it amounts to, you know, really a lot of terror and fear and insecurity for civilians, um, Palestinian Jerusalem, Jerusalemites in, in, in the city. Um, and then to speak to the role that private companies play, um, there's been a lot of investigative, investigative reporting that kind of pulls out specific companies um, like AnyVision, who was found to be operating its facial recognition cameras in East Jerusalem a few years ago. But I think it, it also speaks to the fact that 
the um, Israeli military and the Jerusalem municipality are relying on private corporations to develop and prototype and refine these technologies. So it's quite expensive for them to do themselves. And um, East Jerusalem and the occupied Palestinian territories more generally often serve as a testing ground for the newest and most invasive kinds of surveillance technologies before they're exported elsewhere. So I think um, part of Hamla's intent with the report was also to highlight the impact that these technologies have now before they're used around the world. Um, so it's, it's really important to keep in mind, you know, when technologies are prototyped and tested out and refined in a place where there's a complete denial of basic civil rights, then it really has grave implications for making the invasive use of those technologies the norm elsewhere. Thank you. And we're going to be in the next round focusing on the, that idea of the West Bank and East Jerusalem as laboratories. So hold on to that thought. For folks who are watching who are not expert on Israel-Palestine, I think it's important to remind people that while Israel has asserted its sovereignty over East Jerusalem since 67, um, when it asserted that sovereignty, it did not confer or force citizenship on Palestinians who lived in East Jerusalem, some of them for hundreds of years, their families. Uh, they exist in the gray zone of permanent residency, which is seen as a privilege, not a right. Um, they do not enjoy the rights of Israeli citizens in any way. They enjoy a set of privileges that can be taken away at Israel's discretion or afforded to them as a um, benevolent occupier. Uh, which is why they, when we talk about rights um, of Israeli citizens versus East Jerusalem, we're talking about very different categories. Uh, Marwa, I want to turn to you. Um, last week, the news also broke that Pegasus spyware had allegedly been found on the phones of three senior Palestinian Authority officials, all of whom are linked to the Palestinians' work with the ICC. Um, which Israel has obviously declared essentially an existential threat that has to be fought. Um, there is also a story this week about Israeli spyware being sold to two UAE princes for their own personal use. Um, this comes, uh, you know, on the heels of many stories of, of NSO and there's the other organization um, whose name I just forgot, um, Kandira. Uh, there, the spyware stories that broke this week about um, the UK media sites and others. How do these reports on surveillance technology and specifically the Israeli angle and particularly the Israeli NSO group, NSO group, how do these all fit together into a coherent, um, a coherent narrative about what's happening right now, or do they? Thanks, Laura. Actually, the news cycle goes way back to 2016 when Citizen Lab uh, found that Pegasus was used to hack the phone of a, a human rights defender from the UAE. Um, his name is Ahmed Mansour. He's been jailed for his human rights activism and continues to be in jail until today in horrible conditions. And since then, Pegasus and NSO Group, the developer of this malicious spyware, has been making headlines for all the wrong reasons. Uh, uh, and most recently, actually, before the Frontline Defenders report came out, I'm sure all of us on this call have heard of uh, the Pegasus project revelations, uh, where a, a data set uh, leaked um, that shows the phone numbers of, of, of 50,000 individuals who are marked to be persons of interest to the different government clients of the NSO group. Some of those individuals have been hacked, so there was an actual investigation and forensic analysis that shows that these uh, the devices were successfully hacked, um, and some of them were not, but it just goes on to show that the surveillance industry 
is running wild, um, causing a lot of human rights violations around the world. And I think it's important to note that the NSO group is not the only company out there. As you mentioned, there's another Israeli company called Kendiru, uh, but many, many others coming not only from Israel, but also from different other jurisdictions. And this, it, it, this, um, this company and the stories that continue to reveal uh, and to make headlines about human rights defenders, about lawyers, activists being hacked um, and targeted for, for doing their work and peacefully exercising the rights shows us that we have a gigantic problem of lack of transparency. Where do these companies come from? How do they operate? How are they sold? How are they licensed? Uh, and to what extent do they actually ensure, according to their uh, responsibilities, um, that their products and services do not end up in the wrong hands and do not end up infringing on people's rights? Now, all of those different examples show us also that companies that sell these surveillance technologies cannot be trusted to police themselves. We can't trust the NSO group uh, as they did before to come out with a human rights policy after they were caught red-handed um, in the uh, murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the Washington Post journalist who was murdered in the Saudi consulate um, in Istanbul. And back then there was a call from the former UN Special Rapporteur on freedom of expression, David Kay, who uh, following the murder of Khashoggi and the uh, revelations made by Citizen Lab that two of his associates uh, and a number of others, including a staff member of Amnesty International were also hacked using Pegasus. So the call was, we need a global moratorium on the sale, transfer and use of these technologies because they're, as I said, they're running wild and there is no regulation both at national level, but also globally uh, of, of this industry. And, and, and companies like NSO Group continue to benefit and profit off these human rights abuses without a shred of accountability. And so they, the, the, the stories, they paint a picture, as I said, of lack of accountability lack of transparency and the dire need for states to step in and regulate these companies at national level, but also to control and expose this web of um, surveillance, sale and exchange from countries like Israel to countries like the UAE, like Saudi Arabia, Mexico, India, Rwanda, Tongo, the list is really long. Um, and of course, it is scary, but not surprising uh, that we heard that the NSO uh, Pegasus has been used to target Palestinians. As a matter of fact, personally, for me, it was um, I expected to hear the, the news much, much sooner, uh, given the proximity of NSO group to the Israeli government. And the last point I want to uh, I want to raise is that. Um, of course, the Israeli government holds or bears a responsibility in the sense that it's the host government that regulates the ex and gives uh, export licenses to NSO group. And there has been massive effort done by civil society in the past to pressure the Ministry of Defense that gives the NSO group the license to export its technologies, um, to, to revoke the license. And unfortunately, um, all of that effort has been denied by the Tel Aviv District Court, who said there is no proof of the NSO group's services or products, namely Pegasus, being used to facilitate human rights abuses. Um, so there are different pieces to this uh, surveillance puzzle, but it's worrying. And as Andrew said, it costs, 
it, it has a, a real price on people's personal lives, but also on the wider communities in which they work, function and serve and communicate. Often, I think the Palestine case is a perfect example that links between surveillance as a violation of an individual's right to privacy and um, the wider assault and attack on entire communities where governments can exercise their authoritarian power, where the some at least three of the hacked in Palestinian human rights defenders belong or work with the um, uh, one, you know, with the Palestinian organizations that were recently designated as terrorist organizations. In many other cases, we've followed uh, whereby one person is hacked, especially if, if, if the activist is in exile, so he's out of kind of reach. Um, but nevertheless, the kind of software or spyware that the, the NSO group and other digital mercenaries are providing authoritarian powers they have enabled transnational repression. It, they have enabled governments to reach out beyond their borders and beyond ju jurisdictions to target, harass, intimidate, arrest, and in some cases, as the case of Jamal Khashoggi, um, to murder um, those, those what they consider to be political opponents to the different regimes. And so I think, um, you know, important to note here, the uh, the recent blacklisting of NSO and Kangaroo by the uh, U.S. Department of Commerce, and we think this is a great step towards scrutinizing these companies. Um, and we're trying to encourage other countries to follow suit. And um, these companies need to be blacklisted, sanctioned, and made an, uh, basically a hot potato that nobody wants to touch or make business with. And so I think we it's one step in the right direction, but we need absolutely more uh, from, from different governments to crack down on this, on, um, this, this industry that has absolute unchecked power. Thank you so much. And we're going to come back to you on some of that again. We've lost Andrew again. Hopefully he will be able to join us again very quickly. I want to uh, I want to shift now to talk about some of the broader impacts. I'm going to first quote. Um, let's see. So Amjad Iraqi from Plus 972 magazine, who I think most people on the call probably know. If you don't, you should read him. He commented, and I'm reading a quote here from, this is recent, Palestinians have long warned that Israel has turned the occupied territories into a quote unquote laboratory for weapons and surveillance technologies, invoking a narrative, narrative of quote unquote counterterrorism to serve as a guise for domination. The international community has repeatedly paid no heed, blindly accepting Israel's dubious arguments and prioritizing the need to defend quote-unquote Israeli security without considering what it meant for quote-unquote Palestinian security. Now those states are realizing that Israel's authoritarian methods are spilling out, are spilling onto their own turf. Um, and I recommend the whole article. With that as the lead-in, uh, Sophia, I want to come back to you first. So beyond documenting the abuses of Israel's unchecked surveillance powers in Palestine and East Jerusalem in particular, so Hamla's report has focused on the impact of the assistance on everyday life, right? Palestinians in East Jerusalem, this is what, what was talked about earlier, the personal impact. And, and your report also focused, and you mentioned it briefly in passing before, on surveillance and censorship on social media platforms, in particular, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. This was in the report. 
what role do tech platforms play in Israel's surveillance regime? And this actually relates to what Maru was just saying about extraterritorial impacts of Israeli policies. And, and what are the impacts necessarily of their involvement for the rest of the world beyond the Israel-Palestine um, debate? Yeah, so as Hamla has um, been documenting for quite some years, there's a few ways in which these platforms are um, aiding in the surveillance of Palestinian communities across the region. One of which is this reliance on algorithms that are really inefficient, developed in contexts that are very far away from um, the Middle East more generally and Palestine in particular, um, and algorithms that inadvertently, some might say, criminalize Palestinian political speech. So relying on algorithms that can't pick up the nuance of a dialect or context, and will ban, censor um, words like martyr or Hamas, even when they're used by journalists or somebody reporting on current events or just saying something unrelated to anything incendiary. So that's one way. Another way is the way in which these platforms work with the Israeli government to monitor, censor, and take down Palestinian content online. Um, there's a few ways in which this happens. There's a cyber unit. The Israeli government has a cyber unit that closely monitors Palestinian users on social media platforms like Facebook um, and Twitter and TikTok. And there's also a host of NGOs that have um, been used, that Israel has outsourced this work to. So academic units that give students extra credit to police um, pro-Palestinian content online and, and report it as incendiary to platforms um, and other sorts of NGOs that work with volunteers around the world to do this. Um, so all of these things result in really just the over-policing of Palestinian speech by both the platforms and the Israeli government. Um, for everyday users that we spoke with, this results in users themselves policing their speech online. So this means that a lot of people that we talked to, a lot of people who were interviewed for the report were scared to post on social media, um, were scared to use platforms like WhatsApp because they know that they're owned by Facebook. Um, would, you know, do common things like spelling words differently to avoid being censored, um, but really just a gross infringement on freedom of expression and freedom of speech in digital space, which I think is compounds the um, sensation that many we talked with that they couldn't speak out in physical space as well or gather to, you know, voice their opinions or protest because those actions are also criminalized. So you have these platforms that are purportedly, which I think many of us would um, agree are not actually neutral spaces, um, working in collusion with the government to criminalize and crack down on um, speech that they deem incendiary when it's uh, really a gross violation of fundamental civil liberties. And I think the implications for this is um, normalizing these kinds of collusions between governments and tech platforms. Um, there's already within Israel, um, there's a, a big overlap between the government and um, tech platforms with high level people who have served in the cyber unit, um, then going on to work for Facebook's oversight board and determining the corporate definitions of hate speech. So all of these kinds of overlaps also have um, pretty egregious implications for everyday users. And what we found what was what seemed to be a systemic kind of silencing of Palestinian users on social media platforms. Um, and I think that 
you know, the normalization of these kinds of collaborations is what is most concerning, especially um, when we see similar things happening around the world. Thank you. And, and actually leading back to Marwa, so first of all, I wanna talk a little bit more about the impact that you see Israeli policies and technologies having beyond just their impact on Palestinians. And that has to deal with the export, but also the model that it serves the normalizing, given that Israel is seen as a liberal Western democracy, the normalizing of the use of these technologies, that piece of it. I'd also be interested if you could address this, this, this um, normalizing of um, the algorithms. And, and many of us who are not in Israel-Palestine, who are outside, have seen this with, you know, warnings put up on, you know, tweets where an article from, you know, a mainstream, you know, publication that's talking about something about Palestine ends up getting a warning or um, materials being um, censored or blocked on Facebook. This is this this extends beyond people who are actually in Palestine. If you could address those two things, and and again going back to the framing for this round, the degree to which Israel is using the occupied territories as literally a laboratory to develop, test, and perfect um, these tools, and then export them worldwide. Yeah, there are different um, aspects to this issue. So on the one hand, we're talking about surveillance technologies being developed in occupied territories. And here I want to step back and share a bit more um, in regards to the legal system that allows for these uh, for the deployment of these kind of technologies that actually in other jurisdictions or other countries around the world would be outright banned. Um, but in, in Palestine, as we know, and in the occupied ter territories, they're governed by a military court system. The Israeli civilian law does not extend to uh, the West Bank or um, in Gaza. And uh, even though Israel has yes, one of the advanced uh, laws on, on data protection and privacy, you know, Israel passed the data protection law from 1981. None of these laws and protections apply to Palestinians in the West Bank, on the one hand. On the other hand, Israel is also signatory to many um, human rights treaties, and most uh, prominently the International Covenant on um, Civil and Political Rights, ICCPR. They signed the treaty, I believe, in 1966, ratified it in the early 90s, and yet they maintain a very interesting interpretation of the treaty. They, their interpretation is that the, their responsibilities and obligations under the ICCPR does not extend, cannot be extended um, extraterritorially. And they treat the occupied territories as an extraterritory separate from Israel. And therefore, in other words, or in simpler terms, they say whatever obligations we have to uh, protect, respect, and promote human rights under the ICCPR and international law, it does not apply to Palestinians in the West Bank or in the occupied territories. If I could just weigh in, it, it's striking hearing you say that because all of us are also watching, for instance, today the news that the Minister of Education said that the Israel Prize cannot go to a professor who called for boycotting academic institutions in Israel referring to an academic institution that is located in the settlement of Ariel deep in the West Bank. So simultaneously, Israel increasingly through its laws and its practices treats the entire West Bank as indistinguishable from the territory of the state of Israel. But for this purpose says it's got nothing to do with it. 
Exactly. And that opinion or that interpretation of the law has been rejected by the Human Rights Committee, which is the UN body responsible for monitoring the implementation of the ICCPR by, by, by state members and by the International Court of Justice. And now, so that situation is practically ripe for the Israeli authorities and the Israeli army in particular to collect data as as much as they wish in whatever formats uh, and in ways they would like to, they can coerce Palestinians to submit their data. They can use uh, the fact that many Palestinians depend depend on the military administration to add to to process permits. Uh, in the COVID nineteen uh, pandemic, for instance, there was an application called the Munasiq app, which means the coordinator. It was an app that you, as a as a Palestinian who wished to um, to cross a checkpoint to go to Israel, there are many Palestinian construction workers or Palestinian families that. Live on both sides of the, the green line that would require this kind of permission or permit from, from the Israeli authorities. And with COVID-19, everything was shut down. So your only way possible was to download this app. And this application is so invasive. It's in, in if, you, if you read on it, uh, privacy policies, it basically says, you know, um, you as a user are responsible. You basically waive your right to privacy because your information might be processed for security reasons. And as we've seen in the Washington Post investigation and the Blue Wolf system, the way they're collecting data, you know, by Israeli soldiers just using their smartphones and uh, conveniently uh, taking pictures of Palestinians, regardless whether they're young or old women, uh, men, and it's, it's dehumanizing, you know, all of the, let's say, the principles that we have arrived to in terms of data protection, in terms of privacy, that we as individuals, as humans, not only have the right to privacy, but as data subjects have the right to an agency to, to, to keep our data and to decide who and when we want to share this information. But all of that is thrown out of the window in the occupied territories. And so it's easy when we think, of course, take into, uh, bringing into perspective the military industrial complex in Israel and the fact that many of those who serve in the army go on to open shop in private companies like NSO Group and many others, Anivision, um, there was one example named as well, uh, and sell these technologies to the rest of the world. And of course that the Israeli government itself relies on these companies to deploy these kind of technologies. So we are in a situation where Legally speaking, there is no accountability or way to preserve and protect the rights of Palestinians and their data. Um, so the Israeli authorities can use this information to develop uh, what they are mostly proud of being a nation, uh, um, a startup nation state. And here's the, here is the other thing. A lot of these technologies are marketed and sold to different governments around the world in Latin America and Africa, in the in EU, in the US, uh, and used by different security and law enforcement agencies. This is marketed as field tested. You know, these, these technologies have been used in one of the world's most uh, challenging uh, and... All right, <laughs> that's good. We're back on track. Uh, and, you know, for, for many governments around the world, they perceive Israel indeed as the force that is fighting terrorism and violence every day. And so they trust that technology and Israel uses that experience, so to speak, to market these technologies. Um, that's, on the, that's on the privacy and the surveillance bit. Uh, on the, uh, the use of algorithms and 
um, how what Sophia mentioned in terms of manipulating online space, manipulating platforms that don't necessarily fall under the direct um, jurisdiction uh, of the Israeli authorities, so, right? They can't just delete content on their own. So they found different methods and how they can manipulate that space um, to serve their goals, whether it be by, as Sophia mentioned, setting up a cyber unit that works to just monitor and submit requests to different social media companies, whether it be actually uh, taking hand in developing and shaping content moderation policies of the terms of services of platforms that effectively criminalize Palestinian speech and narrative, um, or by trying to game the system. You know, uh, if Facebook or Twitter um, has a certain reporting functions, what we've learned during the events of May and June, um, thanks to a leak published by BuzzFeed, um, Israel, I believe, had the highest number on content reported related to terrorism and incit incitement to violence. The highest um, of Brazil, I believe, the US, and coming from a small country, it's quite telling the level of resources that are uh, allocated to influence um, online speech and to kind of suppress Palestinian narrative. And it's pretty dangerous because it can be used and copied by other governments around the world. And we already actually see, I have colleagues who have done a really brilliant mapping of facial recognition technologies being used in, Latin, in different countries in Latin America. And surprise, surprise, of course, some of the leading companies uh, exporting that technology are Israeli are Israeli companies, including AnyVision, but there are many others. Um, so it would be silly, for the lack of a better word, for us to think that Palestinian is unique, it's walled off from the rest of the world, and whatever happens there um, does not impact our everyday life. Because again, the stories of NSO group, uh, Kandiru, and many others go on to show and demonstrate that these technologies have a transnational impact that impact many of us living um, in different parts of the world and especially exiled activists that left their home country seeking refuge. But these technologies are out there to get them, unfortunately. Thank you. Um, and picking up on that, Andrew, glad to see you're back with us. The technology is definitely not cooperating entirely, but we're glad you are, you are winning over. Um, so Frontline Defenders works all around the world to defend um, human rights defenders. How does what you reported on or what you found in terms of Israel's targeting of Palestinian NGOs, how does that relate to the broader threat landscape globally with respect to the surveillance and targeting of human rights defenders? And, and picking up on also what Maro was saying, to the extent that you see, I'm curious what your thoughts are in the, to the extent that this exists obviously around the globe, what is the role, if there is a role of Israeli technology specifically in those threats beyond the Palestinians? Yeah, I think um, we've certainly seen documented NSO group and, and others um, being used uh, to surveil human rights defenders in other countries in uh, the Middle East and North Africa, but also in other parts of the world. I mean, clearly there are governments which have uh, put a lot of resources into the ability to surveil and disrupt uh, communications. China, Russia have huge capacity of their own and and sometimes deploy that uh, capacity in allied um, 
countries anyway. Uh, but we've seen a growth in, in the use of this kind of technology by governments that you wouldn't maybe always have assumed had the technology or resources to uh, deploy that kind of surveillance and disruption. And often it's with the support of uh, private companies. Uh, there have been some that, that have not been Israeli, but Israeli companies uh, unfortunately are to the fore. Uh, one of the things we've been doing um, from the side of frontline defenders is calling for uh, stronger regulation of the behavior or the way these companies operate. Um, and it's good that the US government has blocked has not always with a lot of consistency. There's, a, there's often a tension um, or a contradiction between a kind of human rights imperative and wanting to uh, apply a kind of ethical standard and a commercial interest. And, you know, we're, we're an Irish-based um, international NGO, and Ireland generally have been a good government in terms of supporting work for the protection of human rights defenders, but they also have a key part of their economic strategy is about being attractive for um, amongst others IT and social media companies. So you have that kind of challenge of getting government to regulation but at the same time don't want to be uh, having a negative economic impact by regulating some of the activities of private companies. So it's it's a depressing challenge. Um, I think there is greater awareness. I think that the, the recent uh, combination of different stories uh, in the last couple of weeks um, with regards to Israeli companies is, I mean, it's depressing, but it's also hopefully gives uh, a greater impetus to efforts for stronger regulation. But, but um, yeah, it's a struggle to get uh, more effective action on these things. I think we have to continue to try and provide practical support to human rights defenders in these contexts. It's one of the reasons that Frontline Defenders was engaged with Al Haq and others and is with human rights defenders in other countries across uh, the world to provide advice on secure ways of communicating, on ways of deleting information, on helping people delete accounts or re restore accounts, etc. Because we think it's really important to try and support defenders who are trying to navigate this minefield. And, and you know, the reality is that the, the, the big governments or the well-resourced governments and some of the companies that are linked to them are always going to be developing new technology or new ways I think we lost you at the end there. We're not hearing you at all anymore, Andrew. All right, is anyone hearing Andrew? Okay, so we're not hearing you at all anymore. So we're gonna come back to you in just a minute. So hold that thought, um, pointing out, I think the problem, which is that the problem is only a problem if they get caught. <laughs> As they continue to develop, it will continue to be a problem. But we're gonna come back to you again in a second, Andrew. Avner, I want to come to you. I'd love to ask you to expand a little bit on the idea we've been talking about of 
Israel using the occupied territories as a laboratory for surveillance technology. In that vein, I will say one of the most um, alarming details, I think, for a lot of people that came out of the Breaking the Silence reporting and out of the Washington Post report was that the IDF has given settlers access to what sounds like an enormous amount of private data of Palestinians. So even if one argues that the state has legitimate need, which is questionable, it appears that this, this information is getting into the hands of private actors, um, which it doesn't seem like there's any justification for that. Um, can you talk about what you've seen in terms of the breadth and level of surveillance practices, um, how they've expanded? and specifically the relationship between the IDF and Israeli government and the settlers when it comes to surveillance. And, and also, can you touch upon the other maybe most alarming thing, the kind of thing that people just get jarred by, which is this reporting of photographing people and particularly photographing children. And since the report came out, there's another um, case that's all over the headlines um, in the past two days, um, a video that came out um, which is not unique, but it's just came out this week um, of IDF soldiers essentially breaking into a home in Hebron at night and, and assembling, I think it's 12 Palestinian young children and having them say cheese while they're being photographed. It is, it is just this, you know, what is left almost without words seeing this video. So if you could comment on all of those things. All of those things, I'll, I'll try. I will, I will say, and I promise that I'll get to the two other points, just on the point of NSO, I mean, um, uh, I think it is important to remember that, again, this is from publications and from, um, I think, general public knowledge. It seems as if the Israeli security forces have their own technology. So I, I think part of the question is who is, actually, who is actually using NSO on the Palestinian organizations? You know, what was this, the government using some, um, gongos, right? Like government NGOs or right-wing bodies. Was it right-wing bodies themselves? Some names were thrown out there. Um, I, I, and I think that that's, it is important because we've seen in the past couple of years, definitely in the past 10 years, we've seen um, a real sort of hand-to-glove relationship, similar to the military and the settlers that we'll talk about in a second, but the, uh, um, the, the government bodies and um, right-wing organizations that, that are sometimes doing things that the government doesn't necessarily want to do on its own. So I think that's something to, to, to think about and, and to take in, into consideration. Um, um, and I think especially, it was really interesting to hear um, you know, everyone on the panel, I think the point about regulations is, is regulation is key, but just to keep in mind that the regulation is very important especially to your first question, Lara, about sort of the exporting some of this technology, it will be irrelevant when it comes to regulations over Israel and the IDF, uh, unless, you know, um, it's not about regulations, but about sanctioning or so on. But, 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 but I think it is just important to, to keep in mind that we probably, the Israeli military probably has these capabilities, which makes it, I think, even more of, of, of an interesting case. Uh, in terms of your, of, of your question, look, I, I, I want to be honest. Uh, I, I, I've heard this claim for many years, this, this claim or this, or this notion that Israel is you know, using the occupied Palestinian territories, the Palestinians themselves as sort of a, you know, uh, uh, this lab, and, and it never sat right with me. I mean, it was, it was always sort of, um, you know, um, something that 
I, I thought about a lot and, and, and sort of connected to a lot of the things that we were reporting, but uh, I think it always sort of uh, anchored back to um, that's not the main purpose. I think that with the, the latest reporting and definitely us diving in the past, you know, six months or so into, into Blue Wolf, White Wolf, and, and Hebron as a smart city and a pack of wolves, all these sort of this terminology used, um, um, I, I've shifted. Um, I mean, I, I think that um, there, there still is a distorted concept of security, which, which, which leads uh, the Israeli military, the, you know, the, the, the administration, administrations, uh, when it comes to, you know, basic lack of respect to Palestinians' rights, human rights, basic, basic lives, and so on and so forth. But, 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 but I do think that we are seeing a shift. Um, I think that um, in the same way that Hebron is a lab, and Sophia talked about this, and, you know, this is, is many people, uh, uh, and I'm sure Sophia have heard this, or all of you guys have heard this process of Hebronization of places, right? So I think the, the, this, that we can really see, you know, everything Sophia talked about in Jerusalem is obviously a very, uh, very prominent reality in, in Hebron. Um, and I think it, it makes a lot of sense that we see, it doesn't make sense, but it, 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 it's, it, it makes sense that this is happening, that we see this spilling into other places. You know, Hebron is a lab. But I also think that um, I, I'm much more in the place where, where I definitely see um, a lot of our actions in the territories being done sort of, sort of uh, um, in order to, to, to use them in other places, even though I'm not still not necessarily sure if that's the main motivation. I do still think the main motivation is to maintain our permanent control over the Palestinians. And if on the side, we can also make profit, then, then I think you know that's happening as well but i mean i, we, we I think it's, it's sort of like a, it's a feature not a bug let's say whether whether it is the yeah. organizing concept it is a feature not a bug of continued israeli domination yeah. in these areas i, I yeah de definitely with that i definitely agree and i think the the, the point of um, um you know many times we see the, you know the lab or as sort of something that we're exporting externally obviously I think it's also very, very interesting when, when we talk about the dynamic between uh, the, the military and the settlers. And I think, and I think there, uh, you, know, um, you know, similar to the right-wing organizations and the government, we really see this reality of hand to glove. Um, I think there's a lot of, of actions on the ground uh, where um, the, the state, the military ministry of defense is actually given control to the settler communities. There are um, areas in the West Bank where, uh, um, you know, the settlers sit on the radios of the military and the police, where they're an integral part within the security forces. This is generally the case. Um, special security coordinators that are paid by the state and so on. So, so, so when we talk about White Wolf, this, this totally fits into this concept. Um, I mean, we've been dealing uh, uh, last couple of months, a year uh, um, um, with a, where a spike in settler violence, which has always been part of, of the occupation, but uh, for a bunch of different reasons, we, we, we see an increase in, in violence and uh, the settler violence, not only in the outskirts of communities, but really deep within communities of South Urban Hills is, is, is a real hotspot uh, for that. Um, and, and I think that part of, of that relationship 
um, is not, again, not only soldiers standing idly by, but actually soldiers involved in some cases in the attacks or, you know, really, you know, sort of criminally um, 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 I'm not preventing the violence. So we talk about this concept of, of white wolf. This fits into the into the ecosystem, into that dynamic. And and the white wolf is, is basically an outcome of a, a false assumption, um, an attack on um, a, a settler, an Israeli citizen living in in one of the settlements, a, a horrific murder that took place by a Palestinian, um, and. Uh, one of the thoughts were that, that the attacker, Palestinian attacker, entered because of, uh, of, of his work permit. Um, that was a false assumption, as if the, the work permit was, was legit or not legit. And then, uh, but, but the entire system was built around that false assumption and basically gave way to start developing this concept of, of a white wolf. And, and, and this is all sort of public knowledge. It was public, you know, published in different places. But what we, we did here is, is really how, how deep the system is, 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 is used. Um, from what we know, we don't fully understand if the settlers have full access to the entire system. What we definitely know is that they have the ability to scan Palestinians. And this is, uh, again, from what we understand, um, communicates with the greater uh, system of, of, of the blue wolf. So this is definitely a continuation of, of this phenomenon of giving immense power to the settler community, to settler individuals. And, and we've seen in the past, and obviously, I mean, we, we should expect abuse of this knowledge. We've also heard you know, from different Palestinian activists that this is being used by settlers. Again, not 100% sure if this is the system or other systems, but, but this is definitely a, a development. Um, I, 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 and addressing children, the, the, the pictures of children and, and specifically what the, the video that came out that um, uh, the research from B'Tselem uh, um, documented a, a case from September that was now published. Uh, again, as you mentioned, Lara, these, these are uh, um, um, incidences that, that are not isolated. We've seen them in the past, 2016. Um, there, there was a similar video published by B'Tselem. We have a soldier who testified to, to us that was part of a similar, the exact same operation that B'Tselem published. So, I mean, this, this, this has been going on for a very, very long time. Um, do, we don't know that the, the photos taken there were taken as part of the Blue Wolf system. Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, the Blue Wolf system is, on, from what we understand, not on soldiers' own cell phones and not on cameras, but actually uh, in a special, unique sort of unit. Um, uh, but it definitely could be the case. Um, and, I, and I think it's definitely a good question to ask. What are we doing this, with this information? I will just tie up my, my answer and, and, and say that we, we do know that uh, the, the military in January um, promised or said that they're gonna stop this, pro this process of mapping uh, of inter-Palestinian homes. This was not the reason that they entered this house. I mean, it wasn't a mapping uh, um, um, operation, but, but it is, I think, important, not, because, not in order to better the occupation, obviously, but in order to show the cracks within the systems, because the, the military will constantly say, we need to do these operations. And I think showing the facade, you know, or, or, or uncovering the facade, or, or showing the arbitrariness of, of this reality, I think is key. Um, and, and, and questioning are, what is the IDF doing with these photos? 
Um, what, 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 what are they used for? Are they being put within the system, even though maybe they weren't taken with the blue wolf, I think is, is definitely something that we're gonna continue um, you know, putting our, our focus on. Thanks. And I think it's also just worth observing as we talk about facial technology, facial recognition technology in the West Bank, you're mentioning the surge in settler violence, the spike, which is an ongoing, settler violence is ongoing, but we have a spike right now around political and the olive harvest and all that. And there are pictures and videos all over the internet of settlers full face visible um, engaging in, in vandalism, violence and, and whatnot. Um, and, and the IDF and the Israeli government seem completely unable <laughs> with a full face photo to do anything with that in most cases. So it's uh, the, the, the sort of politicization of, of the surveillance technology is pretty clear. Um, in this last round, I wanna talk about what can, must, should be done. Um, Andrew has given up. He, he, he has had such challenges. I feel terrible. It's as if it's as if people didn't, someone didn't want him to participate. And we are so grateful he managed to participate for most of this. Um, I want to very quickly just quote him. And this is something that he said in the context of their, uh, the press release about um, Pegasus being used against the Palestinian NGOs, he said, and I quote, the exposure of illegal spying on peaceful Palestinian human rights defenders coming on top of baseless claims about terrorism against internationally respected human rights organizations emphasizes how important is the continued support of the international community for le their legitimate work. Surely this episode will serve as a stark warning against any deployment of the, of the term terrorist, in quotes, against any human rights defender anywhere in the world and renew efforts to rein in the use of spyware against human rights defenders, journalists, and other civil society activists. So in this round, I want to talk about that. I'm going to start with you, Avner. We have 15 minutes, so you, know, you guys have time to develop ideas. Um, Breaking the silence was, was established to shine a light on Israeli practices and policies in the West Bank and to really help by doing so achieve uh, accountability and change. What sort of accountability do you think can come out of the reporting that we saw this week about Israeli surveillance technology in the West Bank, the facial recognition? And, and is it possible, and this is me looking for a sign of hope, given the rising global concerns about privacy and out of control of surveillance, is it possible that Israel, which as we've talked about before, Israel, the world has chosen not to confront with respect to its violations of Palestinian rights. Is it possible Israel has now accidentally stumbled into an arena where other nations, at least those who are worried about authoritarianism and illiberalism and surveillance, um, are gonna finally see their own vital interests directly at stake and, and they may actually find that there is meaningful pushback. Wow, those are all, those are all great questions. I mean, I, I think that, um... Um, you know, looking at the, the latest reports, I think there's a, a very stark different effect um, that, that we see, um, you know, in the international arena and in Israel. I mean, again, not, shouldn't be a surprise, but, you know, I, I live here. This is my home. This, these are, this is my community. Um, and I think it's, it's very, um, Alarming to me that um, um, I mean I wasn't surprised that the you know Earth didn't sh you know didn't shatter when we came out with our with, with the report or the Washington Post came out with a report with you know with, with, with our help around Blue Wolf but I, I do think that um, it it was interesting and I'm really trying to figure that out when 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 we as we're learning about um, um, 
the, the effect and extent of, of um, you know, NSO, Pegasus, and, and so on and so forth. Because uh, there, I feel that um, there, there's more of a potential, you know, you know, sadly, not for um, um, mass concern for um, other minority rights or Palestinian rights or, you know, other um, human rights defenders, but a direct effect on, on Israeli lives. Um, and, and I think that um, uh, uh, it's, it's a conversation that's maybe only starting, even though this has been going on for a long time. I do think that one of the, again, staying sort of in the local arena here, I, I do think that one of the things that is uh, put on the table more, um, which, which there I do think, I, I do think is very important, especially because of, you know, political change and, 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 know our new, this latest coalition is what what will this do first and foremost after uh, it's tested quote unquote on on um, on Palestinians how, how this spills to you know Palestinian citizens of Israel and I think there especially now in the conversation about um, confronting uh, violence within the Palestinian community in Israel there's a lot of uh, very lively debate about do we allow the Secret Service in involved um, trying to you know to curve that or not? Um, and and I think that uh, that's a make or break conversation, but we'll definitely define if we're going to start seeing more of, of of these tools that we've been discussed today used on um, uh, Israeli citizens. Obviously, as Sophia mentioned, the precedent of of these Jerusalemites is obviously obviously there. So it, it won't be a difficult leap. Um, and, and I think it's actually a very interesting moment with the, the, the political power, if we'd like it or not, but actual political power that um, Palestinians of, of Israel have as part of the coalition. So we could like them being part of the coalition, not, but it's, it's, it's there. And I think another interesting phenomenon of a, of a split within um, Palestinian citizens of Israel um, I don't know if as a right or left, because we don't really have a classic right or left, but definitely between the joint list and, and, and Ram. And I think that's, that's a very interesting, that's a very interesting moment. And I think a very, uh, in the one hand could be, uh, a, could be a devastating moment, right? The sort of legitimacy to what the government is doing, uh, um, um, lack of pushback uh, and so on. On the other hand, it could be a moment where, um, there's actually mass massive pushback, and maybe even a moment where we could see uh, a beginning. Uh, this is this is me being a little optimistic. A beginning of a, of a political block where you see um, Jews of Jews and Arabs thinking together about um, you know yes th their rights as citizens, but could also be a beginning of a conversation of the use of these tools over Palestinians. Um, so, so that's, I think, in the local arena. In, in the international arena, I mean, I think that, um, you know, it, 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 it really depends, I think, on how Israel will continue to play out um, uh, its, its relationship with, with, with companies like NSO. Um, I, I think that uh, it ties very closely together with uh, Israel's response um, um, or you know the, the forcible response, or not response, but actions um, around the, the six Palestinian organizations. And I think those things are 
are tied together. Um, it, 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 we, could, we could maybe see an attempt to, to sort of go off this ladder um, and maybe again with the designation of NSO and so on, this could be an interesting moment, but, but we could also see it flip. Um, I, I have to say, you know, we, we, we definitely think it's extremely important we do this ourselves, you know, exposing the international community to the realities on the ground and, and also expecting uh, statements and, 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 and beyond that from, from the international arena. Uh, I, I don't see the appetite for that. I mean, I think that um, def, it's not something I was in the US um, uh, 10 days ago and, 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 and we met you know, people there. It doesn't seem like there's, there, there's, there's an appetite there, even though I think that we did see an interesting move when, when it came to the Israeli companies, but I don't know if we'll see more than that. And I think when it comes to Europe, um, um, I think that there is a, a, a fear with, um, you know, actually, um, um, you know, standing up to the Israeli government's policies. Um, so, so I'm, I'm not, I'm not holding my breath. I, what, I, what I do think is extremely important, and 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 I think that, you know, this, you know, this conversation, um, I, I think is is a, is a very good indicator. Is is continuing the pressure. Um, from from civil society, um, and I think building links between civil society organizations, Israelis, Palestinians, internationals, I think on this issue, uh, I think is extremely important. Um, I, I know that we couldn't have done, or we couldn't have published, you know, our report on you know uh, um, on Blue Wolf without you know the uh, the Palestinian activists that we know and work with and. In Hebron and, and, and thinking about the, the effect on, on, on their daily lives. And I think um, um, you know, part of our, of our challenge is really how do we, um, in, 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 um, basically in, in, in some ways, force our governments um, into a place where we, we demand more action. Uh, and I think that um, there, there are so many global issues on, on the table and so many uh, so many reasons not to act, um, but but I do think that um, you know if if we'll continue with 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 these exposures, if we continue uh, highlighting uh, the dangers and the implications, I do think that eventually we we will we will see we will see a shift or a change. But it, it, it's a delicate game. I mean, I think there's so much and so much energy out there not to deal with this. And especially when it comes to our, you know, to the local context, not to butt heads with with our government. Um, and, and I think that um, you know, my argument would be that especially now with this weird Israeli coalition, you know, every, sort of Netanyahu is on the sidelines, and everyone's you know, that was, I think, one of the most interesting things hearing when I was in, in Washington, you know, ten days ago was, you know, that there's sort of this conversation. That the American administration is trying to keep this coalition alive, right? I mean, you know that that that's not your job. You know, your, yeah. your job is 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 you know if when 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 we're in the wrong to 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 point that out and 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 so on and so forth. And and I think that maybe with this specific coalition, um, there there actually might be a moment. Uh, and and I think it's definitely important um, for the. More progressive slash liberal, if you could even call them that, elements within within our um, within our coalition 
to hear that, that criticism internationally and for them to understand their responsibility um, to not allow, um, again, this has to do with a range of issues. I mean, the designation of the six organizations right, has to do with right. surveillance, but, but, but also with the backing of, um, of, these, uh, of these companies. Thanks. I, I don't mean to cut you off. I, I want to give our other two speakers a chance to, to wind up. Sophia, and that was that was terrific. Sophia, can you as a lot get this is your last word, whatever you want to say. Um, but if you have any thoughts about what work has been done and should be done to defend Palestinian digital digital rights, given the constraints that Palestinians operate under. Yeah, thanks. Um, I would agree with uh, a lot of what Abner has said, I think that there's, you know, different different tactics to be used um, here in the region and on the international arena. I think I'll say a few things. First, I would say that this summer, the one the the residents that we spoke to for the reports each said that this summer was a turning point in how they used social media. Most people, um, especially younger people talked about, you know, really steering clear of platforms that they were scared to post on before because they know so many people who've been targeted and arrested for, um, for using those platforms and having their speech taken out of context. Um, but I think the critical mass that we witnessed this summer of activism online and the proliferation of, you know, citizen journalists and young influencers from East Jerusalem taking advantage of these platforms was quite um, compelling and did make a big difference in both drawing attention to the ways in which Palestinian speech is censored and is blocked and taken down and also um, allowed a lot of people to use platforms that are inhospitable to Palestinian speech in general and still take them to their advantage. And I think that was a heartening turning point. It's it's definitely didn't solve um, problems and that we continue to face with those platforms, but it did kind of mark a shift in how um, a lot of the Palestinian Jerusalemites that we spoke with in, in the report uh, viewed the platforms and the power that they have, despite them still being insecure and, and um, criminalizing their speech nonetheless. Um, I think in terms of the international arena, so I think in a lot of discussions about Israeli surveillance technologies and the surveillance regime in in Palestine, there's a lot of discussion of the technologies used. And um, I think that it's really important to highlight the impact it has on everyday life on Palestinians living in the region and really to draw out, you know, what the implications this does have for the rest of the world. Um, so I think that's one arena that civil society organizations here have been doing and should continue to do. But I think it's incredibly important to just draw those connections because Laura, I think you touched on this earlier, but this does have implications for the rest of the world. And um, to continue to draw those connections and talk about what the erosion of, of a right to privacy here means for people in different countries globally is quite important, um, especially as you know we are continuing to draw connections between the specific companies operating and the specific technologies. Um, and I think to that end, it's really important what I think what the NSO, um, all of the news surrounding the NSO group since uh, since 2016, but especially in the past few months, has really demonstrated is for people who are, who are um, paying attention to it is the complete lack of international regulation on the use of so many of these surveillance technologies. 
And I think there's a continuous appetite for news about the NSO group because it really does highlight that disjuncture and the need for, it highlights how international law has not kept up technological innovation and the real importance and need of adequately regulating what is a really terrifying um, cyber espionage industry. And people I think are realizing around the world the way in which it's, it's really running wild. So I think, um, using you know ongoing reporting and and advocacy that has and continues to happen to really put pressure on international law to um, catch up with technological innovation today especially around surveillance techno technologies is key but um, as Avner said it's it's a different it's a different scenario and context here in Palestine so um, definitely much more work is still needed to be done on that front. Thank you. And Marwa, you're going to get the last word. I, I will just say, listening to all of this, I am struck by how much this sounds like the conversations that we have in other contexts around arms control. This really is an arms control discussion, um, sort of masquerading as a technology discussion, um, which speaks to something that Andrew referenced earlier, those economic difficulties in getting people to deal with, which is very similar to the weapons trade. And there are also all sorts of self-interest um, arguments from governments that want to retain control to the bill so that even, even liberal governments can do things that are problematic. So Marwa, I want you to, in this last few minutes, and we can run over, you get the full time, um, to sort of wind things up, um, whether whatever you want to talk about, but I'd be interested in you winding this up with this idea of what can and should be done in terms of regulation, in terms of pressure, how much the grassroots can do, whether there are levers in international law that actually can have impact and what those would look like. And then we will end it, we'll end there. Thank you so much, uh, Laura. So since I'm <laughs> given the task to conclude this webinar, I want to actually extend my appreciation to you in framing this conversation in a way that many Palestinian activists, including myself, have been calling for uh, for many years. And, and that is the surveillance, the, the, the impact of the surveillance or the proliferation of the surveillance technology around the world does not end with the one case of a an activist being hacked. The whole supply chain needs to be exposed. And in the Palestinian case, uh, I want to come to a, a place maybe sometime in the future whereby the technologies that are developed abusing a community's rights and right to privacy will be treated pretty much like blood diamond. Nobody wants to use them. Nobody wants to export them, uh, import them, um, or um, say, exchange them or, or um, resell them. Uh, but for now, yes, it's important to link not only the talk about the Pegasus and NSO group, but talk about the genesis of these technologies. As, and as we've highlighted in this webinar, they, these technologies do not exist in a vacuum. They exist in an extremely human rights abusing environment where Palestinians rights to privacy, but also dignity, human dignity, and many other basic rights are completely um, eroded and systematically ignored. So that's very important to keep in mind. And I guess for on a Palestinian level, as a Palestinian activist, but many of us on this call who work on Palestinian rights, let's keep exposing and unearthing these connections. Let us unearth and understand and unpack, not only for us, but also to the rest of the world, uh, to those who are skeptic, maybe like uh, Avner used to be, when we talk about Palestinian being used as a, as a laboratory, because that's not an exaggeration. Uh, 
Um, it's based in facts, it's based in the lived experiences of Palestinians in every day, and uh, we need to just make sure that this is documented for the, re the rest of the world to see. Now, on the international arena or on the global level, as I said before, we are in a situation, um, as we see again and again, where surveillance technologies are running amok and they're being used right, left and center by whoever um, wishes to uh, have or own these technologies and has the money, basically, um, uh, to, to own them and to use them for whatever purpose. And that's why I think many civil society organizations, including Access Now, have renewed the call for a global moratorium on the use, sale and transfer of surveillance technologies until there is indeed a, a global human rights mechanisms that regulate this technology and the use of it in a way that does not infringe on people's rights. It's a huge challenge indeed, um, the implementation and the enforcement of that. I really hope that we won't continue in year after year of hearing about NSO group and, and, and the um, oppressive technologies that it's exporting to the rest of the world continue to dominate headlines until finally stay, governments take to action. And as I said, I think the step that the US uh, took regarding NSO is a very interesting and important step. And hopefully, um, companies like NSO Group, Kandaru, but many others would be held accountable for the role in facilitating human rights abuses worldwide. This being said, to what extent would Israel be held accountable as in the Israeli government? Um, I am skeptic and I don't think there is indeed an appetite by different state members or different governments to hold Israel accountable for that specific part given the wider perspective and the fact that Israel has never been held accountable for any of its human rights crimes or war crimes that are well documented by many organizations, both local and global. Um, and the fact that, you know, during the Pegasus project, um, there was an interesting revelation that Macron, the, the French president and 14 members of his cabinet were um, hacked or marked as persons of interest. And yet, uh, the only thing we've heard that the Israeli uh, government sent an envoy to Paris to discuss the revelations and uh, or the impact of these revelations and that the French government then said, you know, we're going to handle this discreetly is a testimony to the fact that even when national security comes into question, um, there is still hesitation uh, for national governments to take action on Israel. <clears throat> I would, would love to think if Russia or China was responsible for this technology, I think this would be a completely different conversation. Um, and then again, just to tie all of this together, I don't think we can cut and slice human rights of Palestinians, but many other individuals on, on this earth as we liked, or as we wish, or as we conveni conveniently wish to handle subjects. So um, the Palestinian case really goes on to show that um, repression is transnational. Um, it doesn't stay within uh, certain borders. Uh, whatever happens to Palestinians in the occupied, ter in the occupied territories might uh, be exported to other governments um, and any other government uh, countries. And I wish that there will be norms developed in the future that criminalizes and bans the use of some of these technologies. And actually, as a matter of fact, and I wanted to bring this earlier, um, 
facial recognition technologies are dangerous. They facilitate mass surveillance. They are inaccurate. So let's think about the Blue Wolf app that signals to a soldier whether Palestinian is a threat or not by certain colors. The, we can't trust technology to the extent that they can be used for whatever purpose, including for law enforcement or security purposes. And so the, the dangers of these technologies are massive and they need to be banned. And that's a call that we as Access Now have made and trying to pressure lawmakers in the US and in the EU to ban these technologies. And hopefully by doing so, um, it would make it harder for Israeli companies, but many other companies that are profiting and developing um, and driving the sector to continue their profits um, and, and uh, uh, while abusing people's rights. And so on that note, I just want to say thank you again and um, happy to be involved in this uh, webinar. Thank you, Lara, and everybody who organized this um, webinar. Thank you so much, Marwa. And I we're going to end here. I want to say thank you to Andrew, who is no longer on the webinar, but he was terrific. We are honored to have him. Marwa, Avner, and Sophia, thank you for talking with us today and sharing your expertise. Thanks to everyone who joined us, who watched, or who will be listening to this event in the future. We're glad to share the conversation with you. Please check back at our website, www.fmep.org, for a list of resources that were put into the chat relating to it. And also, heads up, we have another webinar tomorrow, which you should check out. It's entitled The Nakba and Its Generational Impact on Palestinian Lives, Memory, Identity, and a Future Rooted in Justice. You can find out information about that and register at www.fmep.org. And with that, we will end here. Thank you all until the next time. <laughs>